You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We usually use this period uh, after the readers to piss and moan about the state of science fiction and publishing, <laughs> but I thought today we'd give that a break and actually talk about literature. We've got a couple of pretty literary writers here who I think some done some very interesting stuff, and um, I th- I just wanted to open. It. I just want to make a suggestion. I'm not going to give a speech, but I wanted to see if I could open up a little area of discussion about. Um, uh, Tim's story about the AI, which I thought was very interesting. It, it one one idea of the story seemed to be that what an AI, all-powerful AI, would want to do is turn everything into a video game. <laughs> and the other thing was the idea of using uh, ghosts to fake technology, which is sort of the opposite of what um, the way we always think about where you use technology to fake ghosts, you know, mediums and stuff. To, oh, it's a very clever idea. But it, it, it occurred to me that the whole idea of an AI, a self-created emergent AI, sort of uh, when a network reaches critical mass. Now, I've used this in a story. Tim's used it. I, my feeling is that this is actually a concept that emerged in Neuromancer. Is that... Was that the first time? Probably. I haven't read that in uh, many, many years, but that was... No? There was something earlier. What was it? Um, what? <laughs> the Budries. Yeah. yeah, that was Budries. Was it self-created? I don't really remember. Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting concept, and it seems like, it seems sort of like a fair... I, I was thinking it might have been the Budris thing. But just the idea of this this consciousness that kind of emerges. That That's was, the idea was, of how life emerged, probably, right? Sunlight hit some puddle of water and some chemicals reacted and suddenly you got organisms. And depending on how you think of it, let there be life. <laughs> a what? The, there was a short story about the evolution of the computers, possibly from the 50s, and the last line of the story is the computer answers people's question about what's it all about and at the end of the universe and says, let there be life. Right. Says that's what? Asimov. That's, yeah. last that's the last question. Oh, okay. All right. So, but th- that's still a little different from a self-emerging AI. I, I, thought, I thought it was a, I remember when I, I've forgotten what Gibson called it, but it just sort of stuck in my head. It, nobody created it. It created itself, which I think is sort of a, yeah. Uh, they fed all the information into a giant computer. And Came here. <laughs> I, there was also a story where they fit all of the information into a giant computer and then uh, uh, asked a series of questions ending with, is there a God? And the answer was, there is now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's true. That's the same. Yeah, you're exactly right. That That's no. an emergent uh, no, but it's, thing. It's a, yeah, that's a specific story, and I don't remember who wrote it. I apologize for that. I remember that story. That's a classic uh, Golden Age story. I've forgotten who did it. Huh? That was Frederick Brown. Okay. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. Cool. Stories for 200, Alex. <laughs> <laughs>
That's not an obscure science fiction story. Well, it probably is. It, it <laughs> once wasn't. Anyway, a um, couple of interesting stories. So um, the other question, the other thing I want to just throw out is it occurred to me, especially during Jeffrey's story, but just thinking about science fiction today in general with all its problems, it seems like one of the things science fiction has contributed to literature is the idea and the technique and the ability to externalize stream of consciousness, which I really think is what um, what Jeffrey's story was about. Externalized stream of consciousness? Yes. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean exactly what I said. <laughs> Uh, what I think, what I think it does well, it has always done well. I was just saying this to Rick: is that it it allows you to express things. Louder. All right, be loud. It allows you to express things metaphorically in in the you know fantastic through the fantastic that you really can't find the exact words to express. That's what the fantastic allows me to do: uh, say things that I feel, uh, but I really don't can't put my finger on the words, the exact words to capture them. And those fantastic things working as metaphors really seem to capture them for me, you know, I mean, in, in reading other people and in writing myself. <laughs> That's what I think it's good for. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, sometimes it's hard to put into words, and sometimes it's just too damn banal. I mean, I didn't yeah, want to write another right. story about, you know, your wife has a kid, and you worry about what your kid's going to be, and, you know, that's the story that's been done many times. But, you know... Uh, throw in some fancy imagery and some magic and suddenly I'm interested in doing it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's not so much, well, it is that it's dull and you can, you re-envision the everyday right. through the fantastic and, uh, you know, the, the fantastic as a metaphor allows you to see things anew, you yeah. know what I mean, that, that you would become tired of or that have become tired. That's the other way I think it works, too. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort exactly. of. I exactly. mean, yeah, because there was, uh, if you think about, for example, the, what do you call it, drowned town or uh, in? The drowned life. Yeah, the drowned life. Uh, did you, it, does that come from Ballard at all, the drowned world? No, that comes, this comes from, I'll tell you this story where it comes from. Just me so fucking fed up with the way <laughs> things are today, I have to say. I mean, there's no rest you turn on the TV, it's the war in Iraq. It's Bush being an idiot. It's the, you know, mortgage crash. The gas prices are going up. This is going on. Your kids are screwing up. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's no rest from anything anymore. There's no chance to relax, you know. So that's, that's I tell you, this, this thing just came, popped right out of my head. I was so, I was so like, uh, frustrated with things at the point when I wrote it. Could you tell? <laughs> yeah, well, also, it's a nice I mean, happy story. <laughs> you talk about metaphor. There's not a metaphor in that story. No? That, no. To me, that story is where you totally, uh, you know, instead of making it a metaphor, you, you completely externalize. What, I don't know. To me, the strength of a story like that, I think, and the difficulty in it, is you're skating this very fine line. And, you know, every... You know, you have a fantasy world, but it's a fantasy world where there's where there's doorknobs. Where it, it's a fantasy world that's very uh, material, oh, and to me, that's very that's important. That that, and if you can skate that line, you know. Well, you know what helps you do that. One of the things I think that helps you allows you to do that is humor. 
Yeah, it's very dark, but you can if you get the well, he said he had this in the story he wrote about the AI thing that he was, you know, it's a it's an interesting story uh, and a real science fiction story in a way. And he gets he makes a lot of uh shifts in the story and so forth, but he's got humor in there that kind of like it kind of blurs the edge a little bit, you know what I mean? You could do things uh behind that that, you know, with the it's like the magician who, you know, does something with this hand over here and, you know, pulls the the rabbit out of the hat over here, you know, the dis- it just dis- dis- distracting a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's your sucker punch them, really. You yeah. Know, you sort of take them off their guard, and then you hit them with something. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're nice. <laughs> we're nice guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we're here for you, readers. <laughs> well, also, say, I was I was thinking about your story at um, you read at Borderlands, which is written from the point of view of a twelve-year-old kid. And I was saying, well, the the narrator in that is like an observant kid with no sense of humor. So he goes through and just sort of sees everything. But that's also the device, really, in this story. Uh, to do humor, you have to have a narrator. The best way, for, or one way, let's say, to do humor, which I think um, one way to do it is to have is to have the story narrated by somebody who who doesn't get the humor, but the reader does. Well, you know. well, it's it's difficult, and when people start writing, what they do all the time when humor is hard to do in stories, but what they always do is they they miss the point that the humor's got to grow out of the situation in the story. It's got to come from the characters. One of the big problems I see with new writers is they're always trying to insinuate the humor from their point of view, like it's their voice that creates the humor around the thing instead of it. It's just happening out of the natural, you know, progression of the story between the characters, you know. But I see what you're saying. It's like understated because right. the kid in the story, he's telling you this stuff that's funny, but he doesn't get it. Right. Cause it's not that he doesn't have a sense of humor, but he's not understanding the, the humor of the situation. Yeah, and that's not what interests him about it. That's because he's a kid, you know. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, when the... The the advantage to me of that kind of humor is uh, that the where the narrator doesn't um, doesn't lay it on you. It's like see, so then you don't have a laugh track, you know. It's right, like right. You're, That's you're what you on. want. Yeah, yeah. And I think both you guys are are good at that. Yeah. Yes, I've been Be very loud. I yeah, I'm, I usually am. Okay. Uh, I've been reading your your book Shadow Year, which I got a few days ago, and. Um, I I noticed when I was reading it that I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I why felt not? Like <laughs> well, actually, I've been sick this week, so I haven't had the opportunity, unfortunately. Um, but I noticed that it seemed to me that there was uh, a flavor of it being almost a memoir uh, in terms of position in history and you're right the childhood experience. It seemed very very personal. Yeah. Well, you know what the thing is? It's really a lot closer to autobiography than it is to fiction, I think, in a lot, to a large extent. I remember my agent saying to me, you know, if this was a memoir, I'd get you a million bucks for it. <laughs> I was like, all right, it's a memoir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the murders, yeah, I remember all that. But, you know, you know, uh, yeah, it, a lot of it is, right? You know, I had to go through the thing at the end. I'll just, just a uh, short story, uh, just a little story. My dad died last summer, right? And I went to the funeral, and, and I didn't think I'd see any of these neighbors from this neighborhood where I grew up. And I had them all in the book with names that were just so close to what they actually were. And then I'm at this, at this funeral, and they're coming up to me and going, we've read all your books. You know what I mean? 
was like, oh, shit. I got to change all of these people's names drastically. And then I started changing them again. And then the manuscript got, got so confusing because I started using, forgot I used that name over here. I had lists. I mean, there's a lot of names in the book, you know. A lot of lists over here. It became you never a real, heard of global search. It became a, became a nightmare, you know. But, uh, yeah, I realized these people are still, in a way it was heartening because it was like, you know what, these people still remember my dad from when he was out there doing, you know, his thing uh, and came to, you know, to see him off. But uh, at the same time, I was it, it gave me his fright because I was like, I'm glad I didn't publish that book with all these people's names. And, like, some of them come off as assholes. And, you know, they're going to know who they are. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, the genius of that book to me is that Jeffrey, who's from the south of England, could create <laughs> the voice of a Long Island suburban kid so yeah. effectively. You know? Yeah. Crazy. I also wanted to talk briefly um, the the way that I got into your stuff and actually what brought me here today was um, I, I read your story, Night Whiskey. Okay, yeah. And I really thought it was superb. Thank you. And, and thought I, it was what? Superb. I thought that it was really well balanced. And and there's and it, it showed me how many stories that I've been reading, because I read quite a bit of short science fiction, that um, that isn't. And I felt like you had just enough backstory and just enough dialogue and just enough just enough of everything and not too much of anything. And you made a wonderful cake, and, and it was great. And I thought that was so rare, and I really wanted to compliment you for that because I really, it was really oh, meaningful to me. Thanks. Uh, you know, other people have told me, uh, you know, this story takes too long to get started. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But the thing is, what you're talking about is pacing. Right. You know, and it's a horror story, really. And pacing in horror is everything because it's about suspense. And, you ha and suspense is something you have to build over time, you know. Uh, or at least one type of, you have two types of horror stories. You have the suspense that you build over time. The other one is Kafka's, the guy wakes up and he's a cockroach in the first line, you know. <laughs> then you're off kilter and it's that kind of horror story. But, you know, the old-fashioned Kipling's ghost stories, Henry James, that kind of stuff, you know. They're all built over time and suspense is so important and timing is so important. It, these are just things I've noticed about horror stories in, in general, you know. But I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I think it's really noticeable in that story. Yeah. It is, and I felt that when I was writing it too. Exactly what you're talking about, you know. You want it. We want that creepiness to bit to come in slowly. You know what I mean? Because then it seems realer. Because you built at the same time you're building the reality of the world that you know the reader's stepping into, and then with the insinuation of the supernatural, you know, if it comes in slowly, then it seems much more realistic in a way given the world that the story takes place in, you know? Well, I actually believed I could find that down. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm living in it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. Somebody once said to me, if you, if you really, in a couple of hundred years, if they want to really know what life in mid-century, or it was mid-century when I was born, wasn't it? Uh, it? The late 20th century, early 20th, first century, post, anyway, in America today, is like uh, in 200 years, people will be reading Stephen King. Because to, to it's sort of the modern uh, mode of horror is, is first that you really have to create the quotidian normal world very carefully. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's the, the source of, uh, and not to compare you and, and King, 
um, all of that. You know, I think King's actually a very good writer. But I think that that, that is sort of, it's not like he was the first person to ever do that, but he sort of made it sort of de rigueur. That's, yeah. that's sort of, if modern horror is not about old castles, it's not about shit like that. It's about, it's about the 7-Eleven. Right. Know? And right. Uh, that's where it happens. And I think that's an improvement. I think that's actually made, gave the field kind of a second life. And uh, I really agree with what you say. But Jeffrey's stuff to me is all about control. You know, and and that's what good writing is about. It's about uh, being in very. Uh, it's almost having a lot of constraints and working in a in a very controlled palette, which I think you do, Thanks. you know, quite effectively. And uh, Tim's a little more all over the place. He, uh, <laughs> it's fun. a different way of working, yeah. but um, you know, like Tim's first story it was fable to me. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't. It was yeah meant to be that sort of universal. Yeah. I mean, there's a river called the River, which who calls it a river? The River. It was meant to be that sort of mythic, fabular kind of thing. So he reminds me a lot of the, his stuff. I, I read his first uh, novel. I, I think that was the first one, right? That I did the blurb for the, the first. Yeah, the, yeah, Ranger yeah. That's Girl. Right, Ranger Girl. Yep. I read it. I was I was into it because it reminded me a lot of of the writing when I was growing up. Uh, you know, going to college, like Tom Robbins uh, remind me of and. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those guys like Coover, Pynchon at that time period, uh, really playful, uh, you know, fun, metafictional stuff that was going on. I, I, I like that kind of stuff. I, I always have, you know. And it, it kind of died out after a while. It kind of – and then the, the dreary well, dreary, dreary yeah. realism <laughs> yeah, came yeah. in, you know what I, I mean? I can confirm so, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that, was, that was the literary mainstays at that time. When I, that, was, that was what was so interesting about it, you know. Those yeah. guys were the big lit writers at the time. Yep. And then, you know, we got into the more, like I was saying, dreary realism for a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking about dreary, uh, dreary realism, tell us a, a little bit about working with Gardner. Oh, it was fun. Oh, it was good. It was Jeffrey good. studied with John Gardner, who's like the guru of, uh, of, crea- of how to write. He wrote... Well, it's a great... Ra- it was... Uh, I don't even like all of his books that much. I mean, I like some of them a lot. He was a great teacher, though. Really, it was something about the way he taught that was really interesting. Um, you know, and uh, I, he told me things when I when I was a student of his that I didn't realize what he was talking about until I was a professional writer years like later. What? And then the light bulb goes off. I don't know. Sometimes he would say things. I can't. Now, now I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> But I can't think of it. But it happens sometimes. I have these aha moments of, oh, that's what he meant by that, you know. Um, and it has a lot to do with, um, you know, he had great advice about plot and about, you know, um, about messing around with the structure of things. And, um, you know, he really knew about the, the way everything worked there. And he, was, he, was encyc- he had an encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, of fiction. I mean, I, could, I used to go in there and try and stump him on stuff, you know. I'd be like, you know, I just read this story, The Willows. He's like, oh, Algernon Blackwood. I, I like that one. You know what I mean? You couldn't stump him. But, uh, yeah, he was a good guy. He had his problems. He was, kind of a, he was kind of troubled in a way. He reminds me of Grendel. If you ever read the book Grendel, you know, uh, he, his personality was Grendel, really, to me, uh, because he was really bright, um, uh, very, uh, you know, inquisitive, and, and he would do stuff, say stuff to me, like one day he would tell, you know, I'd meet him and he'd say, like, you know, 
you know, I, I have this feeling that, you know, that uh, our consciousness is outside our body and it plays us like a violin. You know what I mean? Some people are virtuosos, some people aren't, you know. Say that, something like that. Next day, you tell me the exact opposite thing. You know what I mean? So he was, he was, had one of those kind of minds. But he was really, uh, really interesting, very troubled guy. But he was a great teacher and he was good to me. I mean, you know. He was he liked me because I had the lowest GRE scores of anyone that was ever admitted to Harper College. He loved that, you know. So that's how that was my in. I went to his office and I said, "I want to get into your creative writing thing." He goes, "Look, the, the class is full. Forget it." You know what I mean? Because I guess a lot of people were trying to get in. And then I so I said, "All right," and I left. And as I was walking down the hall, he came out of his office. He said. Come back here. Come back. Uh, so he let me in. I don't know. For what reason, I have no idea. Well, he looked at your test scores, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, he, yeah, he was a good guy. Very kind of tragic in a way, but uh, a really great teacher. If you really want to see a great book about writing, it's the only one I really advise people to look at when I, when I teach the, those classes is The Art of Fiction, yeah. which has just got the greatest exercises in it. Describe a barn as seen by a man whose son has just died in a war, but don't mention the man, the son, or the war. I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the great ones. And you could switch it off if you want. It doesn't have to be a man or a son. It could be a woman and a daughter. Or it doesn't have to be a barn. It could be an old car or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, um, Gardner, uh, the thing that sticks with me about him was his con- his whole idea of the, the dream, the narrative dream or the... The vivid and continuous dream. Yeah. That's what he used to call the narrative. And then and then you realize that narrative, I mean, narrative is something that's been with us for 150,000 years. It's one of the most ancient of human abilities. But then you realize it, it's actually a consciousness device. It actually does. You do get into that thing, you know, and not only in... Uh, and you do it in in all sorts of fiction, you know. Well, it, I mean, that's what fan, well, that's what fantasy fiction is really like. It's like a dream because even though there's a blue rhino in your dream, or there's like you know the CIA's after you, or you're on a roller coaster that's going up into the sky, you know, you really believe that's happening in the dream, and you're reacting to it. It's like the process of read of, of reading when you're in a good story. And like writing in a way too, because there's a believability to it, even if, even though it's outlandish. That's what he was saying. You want to try to capture the continuous part is that your dreams aren't always continuous. They'll stop. You know, you'll be on the roller coaster. Ten minutes later, you'll be in you know uh, late for a test, but you're naked or something like that. You know what? I, so you want to try and make the continuous one. What I find interesting about that, I've always sort of... Ladder. What I find interesting about that, I've always liked the vivid continuous dream thing, and great movies are like that, great literature is like that. I Sometimes it works in place, in ways where it seems like it won't work. And a lot of your stories, Jeff, I know that Shadow Year is autobiographical, but you've always played with the metafictional thing and had Jeff Ford appear as a character in your stories. And yeah. I think of stuff like The Honeyed Knot, where little these realistic things from your life pop in. And I mean, I, don't, I read something where you said it was mostly true, and uh, it seems like throwing it in the reader's face that this is a fiction, I'm really the author, should pop you out of it. And sometimes it does, but there are times when it just works this alchemy, this magic, where I feel like maybe this isn't literally true, but you're telling me a true story about your life. Well, yeah, that's the thing I've always been interested in. And one of the writers that I that I read a lot that, you know, just does this, that I really learned from was uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer. Yeah. He has these, this series of stories he wrote in New York with these New York stories when he's an emigre, you know, from Poland. 
a, a Jew and he's an emigre and he, he was in New York during like the 40s. A lot of them just take place in like an automata somewhere and it's almost like you're sitting across the table from this guy and he starts telling you this, you know, starts telling this story to you and then, you know, uh, it's, it turns into this supernatural. He has a lot of supernatural stories that happen in that, you know, in that setting. Those are my favorites, and he's so convincing that, you know, this is absolutely true. And the other thing that's very hard to do is refer to yourself as a writer when you write. Right. Because people become self-conscious about it right away, you know what I mean? But he pulls that off and convinces <laughs> me it's actually him telling me the story all the time, you know? Yeah. It's hard to do that, I found. I mean, it really working at still working at that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do people have any questions or intelligent comments? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to hear a lot of stupid shit. Yeah. Um, Mr. Pratt, do you think you'll ever win a Hugo? <laughs> well, one can dream. Yeah. I, I got a Hugo last year for my story, Impossible Dreams, that I read at the last SFNSF, and I was so sure I wouldn't get it that I didn't even stay up late to hear the results from Japan, and the first I knew about it was the next morning when I had an email from John Scalzi saying, congratulations on the subject line. That was all it said. That's why I want a Hugo. I didn't even yeah, catch that. I should have yeah, announced yeah. it. These right? things that happen. Was, that was why I asked. <laughs> yeah, that's why she brings it up. Yeah. Oh. Oh. So that was that was a good time. That's pretty cool. I gotta say that. Was what exactly awesome. is a Hugo? <laughs> In the back. <laughs> you all know what a Hugo is. <laughs> but I just wanted to add. You like the trophy, by the way. It's pretty. Is that, yeah. the, is that the one with the... Uh, it's got Ultraman name? on Ultraman, it. Yeah. Well, my sister, my little I'm sister... I'm envious is, of that. Oh, my little sister is a, like, manga fanatic. I, mean, I saw one of those saw the trophy. She was like, oh, the other day. that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's what, what I wanted Cheryl. to add, Terry, because Tim is too modest to mention this, is that he was nominated for this Hugo, and everybody will have looked at that <laughs> list and said... Oh, everybody that's what? Terrible. That's terribly nice for Tim. He's nominated for a Hugo... But one of the other people in the list is Neil Gaiman, and we all know who's going to win. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, that's, I, Tim won. like I said, that's why I didn't stay up late. I was up against Neil, you know. And Neil was actually one of the first people to write to me and yeah, gave me a really hardy, he was a total, totally super nice about it. So Granted, he's got a few, so, you know, he wasn't <laughs> feeling it quite as much. I guess, yeah. He'd actually written me about that story with a really, really, just out of the blue, a really nice compliment. So I was... Cool. Uh, I, I have great affection for Neil. It's a very cool story. I was telling Tim, it, it sort of reminds me of the Please Rewind. It's about a, uh, it's about a video store. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which I, spent is, a, I spent a lot of time in video stores in college. and uh, I think yeah. video stores have a lot of whang in people. They, they, uh, <laughs> it, it awakes a lot of memories in all sorts of people. Well, yeah. I didn't want to do a little magic shop story, right? I mean, you could write right. a little, or a little, or a, or a bookstore story, you know, right. like actually Neil Gaiman and his Sandman comics had a library of all the books that authors never got around to writing. It's so obviously, I couldn't that. do that. You know where that's from, actually? That's from uh, James Branch Cabell. Oh, yeah. That's where he got that from. And I know he's a reader of him, so yeah. that's, he, he ripped that baby off. But that's cool. Yeah, so I made it a video <laughs> store, so it wouldn't be as obvious that I was ripping off. Well, that was, wasn't it Elliot that said, uh, good writers uh, borrow and great writers writer steal? steal. Yeah, yeah. And it was the whole, I mean, yeah. the whole point is still, like I say, you stole that idea from, uh, from Bill Gibson. And, uh, and people are always uh, accusing Jeffrey of stealing. They thought he stole the empire of ice cream from Wallace Stevens. But he claims he didn't. He and stole my hubcaps one time. Fuck Stevens. <laughs> I, I never knew him. I think the scariest uh, notion of Cabell's to other writers 
is the part of the library that contains all of the books that have already been written, except they're the way the author wanted them to be written, not the way they came <laughs> out. Yeah, that's the struggle. <laughs> well. So, so what are you guys writing now? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, all blank. Right this minute. Um, yeah. I... I, I swore I was not going to write any more stories because my kids are getting ready to go to college, you know. <laughs> so I was just going to write novels. And I, since I've made that decision, I've written three stories. And I, so I, I don't know what I'm – I've just been writing a couple of stories now trying to think of a – you know, come up with an idea for a novel. I have a couple ideas. One of the ideas I'm thinking about writing – I guess maybe it's not a good idea to say, but – you know the MK Ultra stuff at the CIA um, at that time period in the 60s where they were experimenting with LSD uh, and, put, you know, they had brothels in San Francisco where they were doping businessmen's drinks and then studying them through a glass window? I mean, I think that just that stuff just cries out for a novel. I mean, you know, th there's one scene in this book, Storming Heaven, where they talk about this the, the CIA guys used to pour in, in each other's coffee, like screwing around. And then one guy took off across Washington, and they had to chase him. He had his gun out, and he was running around high, you know. And so there's a lot of great material out there for that. And, I, and it's, a, it's a great time period, so I, I might, maybe I'll do that, I think. Tim? I'm doing this uh, accidentally almost, this urban fantasy series. Um, I, I wrote this book as a standalone, and my editor liked it and said, you want to write, uh, you know, another one? And I said, sure, I'll write a sequel. And I, you know, was wrote that and turned it in. She said, you, you want to write a couple more? <laughs> you want to write four books in two years? We'll release them six months apart. It'll be great. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, sure, all right. You know. <laughs> the thing about writing t four books in two years is you get really tired about halfway through book four, and that's where I am right now. So. <laughs> my kids are going to school. Your kid just came, showed up, so you got. Oh, you, I know. I got you, this. Yeah. Maybe that series could go for a while. What, be, yeah, one hopes. One really hopes. So uh, yeah, so I'm writing the the fourth book and uh, just got the page proofs for the third book. So it's yeah, I'm pretty. I like the characters. It's almost better that I had to write it so quickly because I didn't have any time to get sick of the characters of the world. You know, it's like finish one. Dive into the next one, you know. So there's something fun about that, though, isn't there? Like planning, you know, like seeing the world. It was develop cool. Well, it was weird because I wrote the first one as a standalone, and then when they wanted more, I was able to sort of sit back and say, okay, now knowing it's going to be a series, what kind of stuff can I build in, like long arc wise? I wanted every book to be its own book because I don't, you know, I hate it when books like aren't clearly marked as a part of a sequential series, and you pick one up and you don't know what the hell's going on, and the first one's out of print. It's annoying. So each of these <laughs> books is its own standalone story. You don't have to know anything in theory about the world. I try and find That's readers. Cool first readers who didn't read the earlier ones, like Lisa Goldstein's here who was in my writing group. They read the third one, having not read the first two. And it was it was useful to know the things that they bounced off of. Um, but I was able to sort of build in some long arc stuff. It's about this character who's a sorceress, sort of a mix between a crime boss and a superhero. And I, I think of kind of the series as a whole as her arc from thug to statesman, basically. Like she has to learn that there are ways to solve problems besides breaking people's kneecaps. And that sometimes you... <laughs> You know, you have to have diplomacy and community and stuff. So I tried to build some of that stuff in over the long arc. But it's uh, it's pretty cool, actually. And they look, I don't know, I got the first two on my bookshelf. They look pretty cool next to each other. I got this great cover. They do art. nice covers, yeah. Oh, Daniel oh. Dos Santos is a, yeah. is a great artist. Yeah, Daniel Dos Santos is doing the covers for all four. And the fourth book, I just liked his covers so much that I uh, put in this minor, like, con artist named Danny Two Saints as an homage to, to Dan. So. Cool. <laughs> Um, 
Well, if nobody's got any other questions or comments, we will. Um, I'd like to thank Tim and Jeffrey for uh, rewarding us tonight with what they, not with what they're doing, but what they have done. And thanks a lot. And thanks you all for coming. Thank thanks you. Thanks, everybody. Cool. Yeah. Cool. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.